Hello there. I'm Sen Lam. Welcome to Ear to Asia. This is a podcast from Asia Institute, the Asian research specialists at the University of Melbourne. In Ear to Asia, we talk with researchers who focus on Asia and its diverse peoples, societies, and histories. Same-sex marriage as a legal and recognized right and practice has only been around just over 15 years. Since 2001, when the Netherlands became the first country to legalize same-sex marriage, more than 20 other countries have followed suit, mainly in Europe and the Americas, but also in New Zealand and South Africa. In Asia, same-sex partnerships have yet to gain legal status. A bill to legalize same-sex marriage was put to Taiwan's parliament in 2012 and failed. Supporters, however, remain confident that Taiwan. May yet become the first Asian society to embrace legal status for same-sex partners. But what of Japan? When it comes to same-sex relationships, Japan is seen by many as comparatively tolerant. Records of same-sex relationships date back to ancient times in Japan, and so far there are no laws that criminalize homosexuality or sexual acts between persons of the same sex. Legally, however. Official recognition of same-sex partnerships remains off the cards in Japan, and for those people in same-sex relationships, so too are the rights and privileges enjoyed by their counterparts in heterosexual marriages and even de facto unions. Joining us to talk about the plight of same-sex partnerships in Japan and how people find creative ways around the legal obstacles is Dr. Claire Marie, an expert in critical language and queer studies in the Japanese context. Claire spent two decades in Japan and is currently senior lecturer in Japanese language at Asia Institute. She has written numerous articles and book chapters on the intersection of language, gender, sexuality, and media. Claire Marie, thanks for joining us on Ear to Asia. Thank you very much for having me here today. Leaving aside the notions of legal marriage or union for the moment, how open are the Japanese in discussing same-sex relationships? Currently in Japan, there is a huge boom within the media space where queer representations really come to the fore in variety programming, entertainment programs, and other areas. You will find a lot of representations of, for example, transgender personalities, and in that space, it's very open, fun, entertaining. This boom at the moment in Japan has been sparked by calls for attending to. Issues of same-sex partnerships and other issues around LGBT in the run-up to the 2020 Olympics. In that aspect, it seems that the media is very tolerant of these issues, but we can also see in the research that I'm doing at the moment that it is framed very much as a new thing, and this ignores a history of repeated attempts by LGBT individuals to have their Issues and rights attended to not only in the media space but also in terms of legislation. Media and popular culture aside, what's your observation of the views of the general public in Japan? Interestingly, there's not a lot of work that's been done on、uh, general public attitudes towards same-sex partnerships or homosexuality, lesbian relationships, and other transgender-related issues. One of the most recent surveys that's been done. Through a group that I'm associated, who has been looking at queer studies in the Japanese context, seems to indicate that people feel there is widespread media attention to these subjects, but they don't really 
want to accept as family members individual lesbian daughters or gay sons or transgender daughters sons etc so is there a counter narrative from supporters of same sex relationships what what does that tell us Since the 1990s there's a lot of effort within the public space through things such as parades and other fun events to raise the visibility and awareness in regards to LGBT issues. There's also at the moment a lot of work that's being done in the corporate sector. Uh, this is being powered in many ways if we take a cynical view in the run up to the 2020 olympics and the push to show that japan is lgbt friendly and to translate that into corporate initiatives that focus on the keyword here is diversity gay people in japan are situated in a social system that's silent about their identities or that is blind to all but uh, what you call the heteronormative this of course has implications for those in same sex partnerships particularly around issues of otherwise ordinary civic rights and privileges but even in straight partnerships what are the advantages enjoyed by married couples in Japan that are not available to unmarried ones the situation in Japan we can understand it only through understanding the family registry system which is called the koseki in Japanese now the koseki is a legal institution into which people are registered upon their birth or if they become a Japanese national the koseki has a long history but in its modern form it is a register of the mother and father and their children onto the same document you can actually opt to move out of your koseki and make your own family registry but when partners marry they form a koseki in which they take on the same legal name and in the japanese legal system legally married partners must have the same last name it can be the wife's last name or it can be the husband's last name but traditionally it's more likely to be the husband's so there is that first issue of on the same family register all of the people registered must have the same name which is something that for many years particularly women have campaigned to have changed and as recently as uh, last year december the high court has thrown out that case to say that it's not possible for legally married people to keep separate last names so the koseki the family registry itself kind of dictates who is considered to be a legal family member and from that we have issues of inheritance access to medical support uh, access to pensions to insurance and access to things such as public housing very gradually over years of campaigning these have been opened up to de facto relationships and these are mostly male female straight relationships and not very opened up to people in same sex partnerships. So in terms of adoption, adopting a child together, a legally married couple are the only people who can adopt legally a child onto their family register. But interestingly, and I've written a little bit about creative ways that people get around the legal restrictions of the koseki as it imposes understandings of exactly who is a family member is through a process of adult adoption. Adult adoption is not just something that happens in Japan, but it does have a long history and it's tied to the older forms of the koseki and contemporary forms of the koseki where there was no male heir. So the idea of adopting a male into the koseki and having that as some way to keep the family going. 
So a creative way to get around the restrictions that are placed on partnerships that are outside of the legal parameters of marriage is to engage in adult adoption. And this has been something that's been done by big name, for example, writers in the 1930s, right up to the contemporary period. It's not very common practice, but it is one creative way of getting through the corseki. So do I understand correctly that heterosexual couples also use adult adoption That's to, correct. to gain acceptance? Yes, it could and, be done that way. And how central is the corseki to everyday life, to Japan's uh, social structure? Well, it's very interesting in that the problem with the corseki is that you can trace families back generation after generation after generation. And therefore, you can identify, for example, peoples who have come from populations or groups who were considered social outcasts. So access to Koseki records has now been somewhat curtailed. The problem with access is that if you're uh, wanting to find out where a person comes from and their background, you can do that through tracing the koseki. And that has implications for structures of discrimination. So essentially, people from disadvantaged groups yes. are essentially trapped under the koseki system. Yes, that's correct. So what about people who are not Japanese necessarily, but have decided to make their home in Japan how are they affected in uh, koseki and also in partnerships or marriages with Japanese people? The koseki system is a family registry system, but it is also linked to nationality. So only people who have Japanese nationality can have a koseki. So the only way for you to enter into that system is to become a Japanese national, which itself is incredibly complex process. For those foreign partners, they don't actually enter as a Japanese national would to take the space of uh, husband or wife, because those are the words that are used for people registered, they get added as a note on the koseki and there's a note that this person has married this other Japanese national. So what about same-sex partnerships? How does the koseki affect same-sex partnerships? At the moment, it's impossible for a same-sex partner to be registered on the same koseki because it is not anywhere stated that a husband must be a man or that a wife must be a woman, but the legal reading of it at the moment is that it's between a male and a female. But we have to remember that the koseki, even though it is extremely rigid, it also has these points of fluidity. So adult adoption is one of those points. And for example, in Japan currently, people who identify as transgender and who have had surgery and who live their life as the sex that is the opposite, they call it in the legal terms, to where they are born, they are able to change their papers and to change their sex on their family registry. In the family registry, we have husband, we have wife, and we have daughters and sons. We don't actually have gender on there. So it's all about familial relationships. And once if a transgender person who has fulfilled all of the requirements and is permitted to change their sex, they exit the koseki and make their own. That is not a big issue in Japanese society. But most people do it at the point where they get married. 
You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute, University of Melbourne. And our guest today is Dr. Claire Marie, Senior Lecturer in Japanese Language at Asia Institute. And she's talking today about the plight of same-sex partnerships in Japan and how people resist or otherwise find creative ways around the legal obstacles. So Claire Marie, turning to the larger legal framework in Japan, what does the national constitution have to say about same-sex marriage? Nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing so it's not recognised as no. even an, an issue. No. Within the Japanese legal constitutional area, the act that covers marriage says that it must be according to the free will of the two sexes. It doesn't actually say male or female. And that's a remnant of an earlier area where women did not really have the ability to choose their marriage partners. So we have to remember that this is a system that has carried on for quite a while, and that's a very patriarchal system. So when Japan is defeated in the war and the constitution is uh, revisited and it is made into the current contemporary constitution, that wording is altered so that we have the idea that it is a free choice of two people. But it's not restricted to genders. We can read it as being open or we can read it as being kind of not open to same-sex partners. So when you say that it's not really an issue in legal terms, has it never been tested in court, same-sex marriage and, and the rights connected with that? Not as far as I know through testing it in court. I suppose I have to backtrack a little bit to talk about marriage. Marriage in Japan is a process of going to the local ward office and submitting the marriage documents and then they are processed by the ward. So that is a legal marriage. What has happened is that People, same-sex couples, have gone to their ward and attempted to have their document processed and been turned away. Now, that's an important part in the legal journey. Uh, How do the wards at the local level explain that they can't process this marriage? But what we do see at the moment are small inroads at the local level. So, for example, the Shibuya Ward in Tokyo, which is uh, one of the major urban areas, and the Setagaya Ward, still a very central place in Tokyo, uh, have introduced local ordinances that ask for people in that specific ward to recognise same-sex partnerships that have been registered with the ward. You mentioned adult adoption earlier in the conversation. How do same-sex partners use adult adoption to gain recognition in Japanese society? So there's two types of adoptions within the Japanese family registration sphere. The first one is with a child, and with an adult adopting a child, the child severs all relationship with their natural biological family. An adult adoption, that is not what happens. The person being adopted enters that koseki and forms a legal relationship with the person who is adopting them. So that is a family relationship. So that then allows that person to inherit property. It allows that person to act as the voice for that person in instances of medical emergencies, uh, to claim insurance, to be able to reside in the same abode and other things that are legally mapped out for anyone of the same family. So in same-sex partnerships, is it always the older partner who does the adopting? Yes, an adult adoption can only be between someone who is older adopting someone who is younger. It doesn't have to be that much of an age difference, but there does need to be at least 
a few months age difference in order for it to work. So we shouldn't think of it as a, a strange kind of um, relationship, but it's a practice that has been done uh, and a part of Japanese society for quite a while. So it's a clever way. It's a clever way of circumventing the legal restrictions on who can be considered to be legally in the same family. And it's a clever way of doing it without, you know, causing too much attention. It's not strange. It's not weird. So to your knowledge, uh, some same-sex partnerships have benefited from adult adoption. Uh, It depends very much on circumstances of the individual. But unless you can prove some kind of legal relationship, then it's very difficult if in the instance of a partner's death, there are many sad stories of people being thrown out of their apartment, of people not being able to go to their partner's funeral, of people not being able to have a say in how their partner is treated in hospital, not being able to visit them in hospital. So those are the things that are afforded to family members. If you're not a family member, these are the things that you cannot access. So is this where the drafting of notary deeds might come in handy? Yes. So not everyone wants to enter into a legal marriage. For people who want to take an alternative route, in the 1990s was the suggestion to make an agreement between two partners. So my partner and myself were the first couple in Japan to make a notary deed and have it registered with the local notary office. That is a mutual agreement about how we wish our partnership to be understood. But the key point of that is that it could be drawn up between one person and multiple people. So that if someone wanted to say their best friend, they would like their best friend to look after them if they're in hospital, but they would like their partner to deal with the financial things, they could set that down in an agreement with those people. So the drafting of the notary deed, does that also entitle your partner to the role of, of Moshu, the chief mourner, right. should, should you die? Um, what does being chief mourner signify to the outside world? The Moshu, the chief mourner, is a symbolic position that takes on a symbol of closeness to the deceased person. The person is in charge of the funeral. It's usually a position that's taken by the person who is going to keep on that family name. Symbolically, saying that you want a specific person, in this case a partner, to become the Moshu is saying, I consider this person to be my family and to be the most important family member to me. That's why that's included. Uh, It's not just the agreement itself, but also wills are an important part of that. And because of the way that the Koseki system functions, the legal family members can still claim a certain percentage in terms of inheritance. There's not much that can be done about that, but setting down things such as visitation rights, things such as, you know, the right to stay in the same abode are important parts of that. Ensuring that, you know, you can have the right to look after your partner's property, sort out your things, take family photos that you want and things like that. Because the sad stories that come out are where you just can't do that. You're kicked out of the apartment. You don't have any access at all. And suddenly there's nothing. So what about activism? Has there been any lobbying by interest groups in the pursuit of uh, legalised same-sex marriage? There's been lobbying in terms of thinking about transgender issues, which are slightly different to the issue of same-sex marriage. But in the late 1990s, Japan did put forward 
a law and the legislation has passed that people are able to change the sex that they were allocated birth legally. But one of the provisions of that is that they must not be married at the time that they do that. So that is, you know, saying no to same-sex marriage in a certain way. So there's lobbying around that, the injustice of that. People who are in relationships, who are legally married, they need to divorce in able to fulfil that. Um, and there's also lobbying around perhaps at a more practical level to get industry on side, insurance companies on side, local ordinances on side, up to the national level, discussions with politicians. And there is more general awareness of the issues now due to that. And as more and more countries come to accept same-sex marriages as legal, uh, it seems Japan will come under greater pressure to bow uh, to the global cultural shift. What are the chances uh, that Japan will, in fact, adapt to the changes that we're seeing in uh, sexual citizenship internationally? Yeah, that's a really big question. And I have argued in most of my writing that until there is something that actually revisits the koseki, that we won't see same-sex marriage in that form. However, there are a group of very knowledgeable, wise legal activists, academics, social activists who have been working to formulate perhaps an alternative system. So it would be something that's more like a registry system for same-sex partners and perhaps other partners that is an alternative to the legal marriage. That may work, but it probably won't be a legal marriage as it is known now because it is linked so heavily to the registry system. And Claire Marie, you mentioned your own partnership earlier in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Is that what got you interested in this topic? I suppose on one level, yes. I've lobbied and worked at the activist level on issues to do with same-sex partnership rights, issues to do with sexuality and gender. And I've also been involved in many discussions around this and alternatives to marriage. I'm also in gender studies where the personal is political is an old feminist motto. And I've been asked to write about this in many ways. And so I've decided if I'm going to, then I should probably look into it in full and see how we can position the issue. So apart from a professional interest, you've obviously taken a personal interest in this field of study. What are some of the challenges, do you think, of researching this area? Um, there is this general idea, especially outside of Japan, that Japan is very open to gender, sexuality, and Japan is very open to gender and sexuality. But on the legal level and at key points in one's life course, you come across times, instances, hurdles that are very much to do with gender and to do with sexual orientation or sexuality. Actually having that understood and acknowledged can be very difficult because there is this idea of openness around sex and sexuality, but it's still very much gendered and it's still very heteronormative. So the force is still very much linked to the idea that the male-female coupling is the best or the most important for the state. Sometimes it can become very antagonistic with the idea that people are out to talk about gender, sexuality and rights are questioning traditional families, when I think that is a little bit of the wrong way to look at it. So legalities aside, you're also fighting a very entrenched culture, would that be accurate to yeah. say? Yeah. 
um, family is important to everyone and family is important regardless of your sexual orientation or regardless of your gender. But how people perhaps negotiate that or create alternative families is also an important part of this discussion. Claire Marie, thank you. Thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Claire Marie, a linguistics researcher from Asia Institute, specialising in queer and language studies and where gender, sexuality and media intersect. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. And you can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. And be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud. And if you've enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you'd give us a generous rating in iTunes or like us in SoundCloud. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2016, the University of Melbourne. I'm Sen Lam. Thank you for your company. Until the next time, bye for now.